I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Julie Gould, and this is Working Scientist. In this technology series, we're exploring how technologies are affecting scientists, research and universities. And we continue along the same lines as our second episode, when we looked at the importance of coding skills in a research career. So last time we heard from Jess Hedge, who had to teach herself how to code, when she realised that she needed to adapt some software in order to complete her research. Now, during our conversation, she mentioned that although she taught herself most of the skills, she would have liked to attend an intense workshop where she could focus on her training and skills. Now, someone who does run these workshops is Harriet Alexander. She's a postdoctoral fellow in Oceanography Bioinformatics at the University of California, Davis, and she's also an instructor for software carpentry. Now, she had a chat with Jeff Perkel, our technology editor here at Nature, about why a course like software carpentry can be really useful. More and more scientists are writing code and running complex analyses on larger and larger data sets. And traditionally, we haven't had a lot of training in how to do that as we're going through our education as a graduate student or as an undergraduate. And so the program really merges concepts from software engineering and brings them into a kind of basic entry level for scientists to teach them basic coding in either Python and R, Git and version control, database management with SQL, things along those lines. And the courses are designed usually to be taught in a kind of compact and intensive sort of hands-on way over a period of about two days. What kind of people take the course? Uh, Undergraduates, graduate students, PIs? I would say it varies from course to course. Typically in the courses that I've taught, it's been a mixture of graduate students, postdocs, technical staff, or sometimes PIs basically people who are actively doing research. And I feel like the people who are drawn to taking this type of program are people who are encountering problems in their own research. What kinds of problems are you talking about? What kinds of problems do people encounter and uh, drive them to want to learn how to code? Increasingly in biology, people are turning to methods which generate large amounts of data. In particular, I'm thinking about sequence data. And from myself, I came into a lab that hadn't done a lot of sequencing, but we wanted to use sequencing to answer some questions we had about how phytoplankton respond when there's a pulse of nutrients. And so we did something called RNA-seq, where we 
sequenced the expressed genes, and we generated all these massive files, which have to be put through a series of contortions by pumping them through various software programs. And I struggled a lot with figuring out how to manipulate these data. How do I look at these data on the command line? I can't open it in Excel because it's a file that's, I don't know, 10 gigabytes in size, and that would break Excel. So how can I actually look at it? And I wasn't terribly familiar with the command line. And I think that this type of problem is something that's increasingly common for biologists and also in other disciplines, potentially. What will this training do for your career and, and sort of like what would be the next step for you? What we try to do as instructors is take away the fear element because a lot of us have sort of a, oh, I'm not a computer scientist or, oh, I'm not a statistician. I can't do this. And trying to break down that mental blockade and really enable people and make them feel comfortable with asking questions, making them feel comfortable to fail, make them realize that, you know, they can do this and they can Google error messages. And frankly, that's how everybody who does do computational science or coding works. You go to Google, you read forums, you find the answers. Software Carpentry has has hundreds of uh, instructors all over the world. One of the things that makes you unique is that is that you were the only one to offer or to give a workshop in Antarctica. How did that go? So I went to Antarctica in January of 2018 as a participant in the advanced training program in Antarctica for early career scientists. The reason that I ended up giving a software carpentry workshop at McMurdo Station was because of inclement weather. We were down there for a course, and our time was really tightly scheduled so that we can do all the course requirements and get all of our field samples and run our experiments. However, we had a series of bad weather days and when around the time that we were supposed to fly out, and we ended up getting stuck at McMurdo Station for, I think it was about five days after the point we were supposed to have left. So we ended up having time to be able to run a software carpentry workshop during the last couple of days that we were waiting for our plane to take us home. How did that course go? How did it differ from the ones you've given, um, you know, not in Antarctica? Well, it was very different. The primary difference that I discovered was that access to the Internet is significantly slower and more limited down in Antarctica than it is at a university where I would have taught back up in the States. So the primary problem that I ran into was being able to access the course materials and trying to download the software programs that we needed for people to be able to run these materials on their own machines, which is a primary goal of software carpentry. The idea is that you come with your own laptop and you're able to do everything that the instructor is teaching you on your own laptop. However, most people don't have, for example, for Python, we like to install Anaconda. And most people who want to take software carpentry won't necessarily have Anaconda installed on their computer. And so I spent a few days trying in vain to download Anaconda, just one copy of it, onto a USB stick. And it is, I think it's 300 megabytes in size give or take. And I was unable to download it at all. So that definitely made me have to be more flexible for the teaching of the course. 
what other technical challenges do they have there? It's um, it's so remote. Um, are there tools that you need that you can't get or that you kind of have to just sort of jerry-rig from what's available? Deploying to do science in Antarctica requires that you plan very meticulously because as you're alluding to, once you're down there, you're down there and there is no Target, Walmart, Amazon. You're not going to be able to get whatever you need. So for scientists, that means that Typically, we ship in all the equipment and materials that we know that we're going to need. However, McMurdo is kind of a wonderful place. It's been around for a long time, and they have a lot of supplies there. So when I was down there, I needed, oh, what was it? I ended up deciding that I really needed a syringe to be able to inject these plastic bags with a chemical that we wanted to use for an experiment. And it just so happened that they had this stock room full of old, random odds and ends, ranging from different types of glassware and leftover little scientific equipment and little disposable items. And I was able to find what I needed in that room. But the name of the game when it comes to deploying to remote places to do field research is really preparation, like a Boy Scout. You need to make sure that you have what you need to do your science. So if you didn't um, think to bring it yourself, it's got to be in the room of requirements or you're out of luck. Exactly, exactly. And I think most of the time people make sure to have everything and also have redundancies because when you get down there and it's cold and blowing and whatever you're doing, things sometimes break. So having a backup is always a good idea. Now, admittedly, not everybody enjoys working on software development and coding. I totally get that. I'm one of them. But for those that do, there's actually a career path that might be of interest. Research software engineers, although not a new role, is a newly recognised role, and their need is growing rapidly, says Simon Hetrick, who is the founding chair of the UK branch of the Research Software Engineers Association. I asked him what a research software engineer actually was. It's a person who combines deep understanding of research, about 67% of them have PhDs, understands the way that researchers work, which is a very important thing to do, and also understands software engineering. And obviously these people are now vital because so much research relies on software. Uh, combine, combining that reliance with the fact that not many researchers have training, then it's, it's clear that what you need is a new role in research, somebody who can, who can do that translation between the research and the software engineering. There is an argument that you know scientists should learn to code and to develop their own software because they're the ones that are the most familiar with their data. If a scientist can learn to do it themselves, what, what is a need for a research software engineer? I would say all researchers should learn to code because it's a very useful skill to have, not just in your research but in your day-to-day -day life. And it also means that when you need to work with people like research software engineers, you can speak the same language. Some researchers are facing problems that are quite straightforward. Organizing some straightforward cleaning and analysis of a, a small data set that's well within their remit. They can, they can teach themselves how to do it. But the thing is, researchers are being asked to do more and more as research modernizes and improves. So they have to not just do their own research and have all their own domains understanding. They have to manage staff. They have to look after their HR and their finances. You know, they have to comply with data regulations and all, and a whole suite of different things. Adding software engineering into that 
is really quite taxing, regardless of how intelligent and hardworking you are. And as research software engineers are based within universities and understand researchers, then it's a very easy um, relationship that you can form between those two groups. So what are the benefits of working with a research software engineer? One of the real benefits of working with a research software engineer is because they have this specialist knowledge in software engineering, they can listen to the researcher's problem and they can make so many different and new suggestions about the way things can be done that will really, really benefit the researcher. Let's use an example. We've got a virologist or someone who works in um, genetics and who has to do a lot of genetic sequencing and they come out with a huge data set that they need to manage and maybe merge with another data set and then compile and then analyse. So how would a research software engineer be able to help in this situation? Generally, it depends on what you're trying to do with the, data, with the data in the end, what sort of analysis you're trying to conduct. So a research software engineer would be brought in very early on. You would talk through the problem with them, and then they would make the right kind of suggestions. So they would push you towards using software that already existed, or at least doing a search to find other people who had done this kind of analysis to find out what tools they'd used, rather than just starting from scratch and writing your own software. They would certainly suggest that you follow good open research techniques so that every single step of your research could be repeated and reproduced, which is really really something that's really important to the open research people. When it came to particular tweaks or specific changes you wanted or specific outcomes you wanted from your research, if software didn't exist, they would work with you to develop something that did that analysis but also was acceptable to you and you could use it yourself. They would, they would help you with the training on that software and they would document it and they would probably suggest that it would be a good idea if you were to share this new, this new software they'd created with other people in your field. How are research software engineers employed? Are they like a postdoc where they're on, on grants and supported by a, you know, a PI or are they employed by the university? Or, you know, how, how does the employment structure work? What used to happen was that researchers realized they relied on software quite considerably. They knew that they didn't have much training or the skills within the group, so they, they would look to employ a software developer. But there's no career path for a software developer in most universities. So at that point, if you give a professor a problem, they tend to usually find a postdoc-shaped solution. So what would happen is they would recruit people into a postdoc position, that person would spend more and more of their life writing software and becoming absolutely vital to the group's work, but at the same time not generating um, papers, not bringing in funding, and those are the two things that most postdoctoral positions are judged on. So this person would come in, do incredible work, become vital to the group, but have absolutely zero chance of um, progressing their career, and eventually the really, really dedicated ones would stay, but, but many would just leave. What happened with the RSE, the Research Software Engineering Campaign, was that we, we tried to change this so that there would be a set career path within, within academia for research software engineers before the rise of research software engineering groups. So this was a model that first started at UCL, and they brought together their research software engineers, they pulled them into a group, and then they hired their time out to researchers across the university. Um, that meant researchers got a specialist, for, and they only paid for that person when they needed them. They didn't have to worry about recruitment and what happens when this project's finished, how am I going to keep hold of them. And it also meant the research software engineers got, by pooling demand, managed to get much uh, more predictable careers. They knew there would be more work coming in and that they wouldn't, wouldn't have to 
jump from one short fixed-term contract to another. It's a bit like a core laboratory, but based on the people and their skills rather than instrumentation. Yes, many times people have said, so I'm basically a telescope nowadays. So how does one become a research software engineer? Through a variety of different means, but looking at the sort of, to take the sort of typical example, you start off as somebody who has an interest in research. You take up a PhD in a field that doesn't have to be computational, but the, the topic that you're working on requires software to be solved. And then you spend your time writing software and you get and you start to love it. And when you get to the end of your PhD, you make that decision about whether you want to be a researcher who does software or a research software engineer who does a bit of research. And generally, people who choose the latter option have decided that they like the software and they want to apply it to different domains. So it's, it's one of the things that gets them out of this idea that they want to work with a range of different projects doing the software engineering and engineering rather than just working within a single research domain. So what advice would you have for anybody who is interested in becoming a research software engineer? To get in touch with the RSE group, if there is one local to your, to your organisation. And if not, then get in touch with the National Association. They'll get you in touch with somebody. But the, the other great thing to do would be to come to the RSE conference, which takes place every year. It's a really good event to go to because this group is the group that's recently been starting to be recognised, so they're very, very enthusiastic and keen. It's a really good conference to attend. Thanks to Harriet Alexander from UC Davis and to Simon Hetrick from the Software Sustainability Institute and the Research Software Engineers Association. Now, a skill that comes hand in hand with compiling large data sets is managing them well. And in the next episode, we will look at why it's so important to manage your data well and why this is a key element in doing reliably reproducible research. So more and more in data science and, and computer science, having papers with accompanying data and accompanying code is becoming crucial. And there's certain venues where that's that's mandatory. Um, but more and more venues are encouraging that. So where you can say, well, here's my paper and the findings that I have in this paper are based on this data set and here's the code for the analysis that I ran on that data set. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Gould. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 